Let's turn in our Bibles today to Psalm 47. Let's turn there to Psalm 47. And we will hear God's word from this passage as we continue looking at this portion of the Psalms. Psalm 47, starting in verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. God reigns over the nations. God sits On his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Our God, we Thank you for your grace in revealing yourself to us and that we can gather again this afternoon and we can come and hear your word as you speak to your people with your commands, your instructions, uh, your revelation of your greatness. We thank you for your word, that your word is perfect, that it revives the soul. We pray for your Holy Spirit and his help right now. May you help us with all our sinfulness and all the ways that Satan would seek to distract us from this time of hearing your word. May you encourage and revive and teach us this afternoon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, probably many of you know about Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the most famous emperors in Western civilization. And Napoleon was especially well known because of his military victories. Napoleon uh, rose to prominence during the French Revolution, fighting uh, for the revolution, and then was sort of part of a group that uh, took over the government in the late 1700s in France and Then there was some dissatisfaction with that government, uh, but Napoleon put down an insurrection uh, against that government. And it was at that time that people began to look at him and they called him the hero and the savior of the Republic of France. Well, then a few years later, there was some uprising again, and instead of putting that down, Napoleon actually began to lead it. Uh, He seemed to just go along with whatever the people at the time wanted, what the masses wanted. He would lead in that, and he won the hearts of the people. He became their hero, and so 
he put down, he overthrew the very same government that he essentially set up, uh, and he became the ruler and the leader of France. So once again, the people loved him. He was regarded as their savior. And then he declared that he was going to be the emperor of France. But of course, back then, to become the emperor of France, you needed the approval of the pope. And so picture this scene. Imagine this scene. It's the Notre Dame Cathedral there in Paris. The pope has arrived Pope Pius VII, he has arrived to crown Napoleon as emperor. The people love him, and Napoleon is decked out there in his fancy red silk with these giant coats of white fur. He's holding this enormous golden scepter, and Pope Pius places this pretty garish golden crown upon his head. And Napoleon is crowned in 1804 Emperor of France. Well, when that happens, uh, imagine, what do you think the people did? Uh, did the people sitting there in the cathedral, do you think they stared out the windows during the ceremony and then at the end kind of muttered to themselves, long live the king? Long live the king, as if they were bored out of their minds. And then when Napoleon walked out of the cathedral, what do you think happened? Did he walk out and find the streets were empty? That nobody showed up for his coronation ceremony? Everybody was busy that day. Everybody had better things to do. Everybody felt like sleeping in that morning? Well, I'm no historian, but I I don't think that's what happened. When this great hero and savior of the nation was crowned, I imagine that the people shouted, Long live the king! Long live the king! Excited to see their new emperor crowned, and then When Napoleon walked out into the streets, I imagine that the crowds were there filling the streets. That people stopped what they were doing and cleared their schedules to make sure they were there because the whole nation wanted to celebrate their beloved emperor being crowned. Well, if we can imagine that, uh, we can come to this psalm, and this psalm is a psalm about God being enthroned. God being enthroned as king, uh, declaring his kingship, but it's not just about the fact that God is on the throne. It's also a psalm that clearly tells us how we should respond. That when such a great king, such a great savior, declares that he is king, his people ought to celebrate They ought to be excited. They ought to shout for joy. This is a psalm that's about worship. And how God is worthy of all of our worship. God is worthy of us praising him. And it specifically tells us how we should worship him. It tells us that we should be excited 
about worshiping him. We should worship him with joy. And we should worship him with song. That's what we're going to look at as we look at this psalm today. So the first part of the psalm, the psalm is pretty evenly broken into two different parts. The first part, we can say, is a call to shout because God wins. And so in each of these parts, we have the command and we have the reason. And this part, first part, we see that we are to shout because God has won a victory. And that's in the first four verses. So let's think uh, uh, first at uh, the command in verse 1 and read it again. It says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And so you see a command in, in two parts. Clap, shout. And I don't think that this is two commands. It's like when someone says to you, get up and go. They're not really saying, get up, go. They're saying, get up and go. And that's what this verse is saying. Clap and shout. This is how you are to respond because of what has happened. And that command, clap and shout, tells us what it's trying to get across. Is this a literal command that we all have to clap? Uh, That when we worship God, we, we must be clapping? Uh, I grew up in Latin America, as most of you know, and that was church experience. We would always clap in church. We we would clap so much that my hands would hurt, and I would get so tired of clapping. We would clap our hands, but it doesn't, it's not a, um, it's not necessarily a, a literal command to be taken here. It's a, it's a principle that we are to apply. Americans in general don't clap their hands in a, in a worship service. That's fine. It's a, it's a cultural thing. But we don't take this command literally just as just like we don't take other commands in the Psalms literally, like praise the Lord with the lute. Right? So does that mean every single church in all across the world is required to have a lute in their worship services? No. It's a principle. Praise God with song. So what's the principle behind the command here to clap and shout? Well, I think the principle here is that God's people should be excited to worship God. We should have joy in worshiping him. Think in America, uh, the nation that doesn't clap a lot, when do we clap? Well, you clap when someone graduates. And they walk across the stage and get their diploma. And you clap to congratulate that person. It's to show that someone has done something great. Or you clap because something exciting has happened for you. You score the goal. You win the Science Olympiad. And so you just can't contain yourself. And what are you going to do with all this excitement and energy that is inside you? You can't just start banging on things. That's going to hurt you. So you, you clap your hands together. This is just a, it's a visceral, physical reaction. We have emotions within us. And we are so excited we can't contain it. And so in some way we express that physically. And so the command here is to be excited. 
and to show your joy in your worship of God. Now we know that people can kind of take that principle in itself and they can take it way too far. Uh, and so you've got to remember other things in the New Testament, uh, all things to be done decently and in order, right? And you're not to draw attention to yourself in, in worship. So we're not talking about the charismania that is sometimes in some churches. We're not talking about that kind of just disorderly thing. It's just a general principle of what is in our hearts and how we express it. And so you can express your excitement in all kinds of ways when you sing. You can sing, as it says in verse 1, with loud songs of joy. Just ask yourself, are you singing with joy in your heart when you sing? Sing with all of your heart when we pray. You can say amen to the prayer as a way of expressing your being engaged with the prayer. When you listen to the word of God, when someone is reading it or when it's being preached, your, your body can show whether you think it's exciting or not. Uh, you, can, you can be lounging back like you're about to fall asleep. You can be staring out the window as if you're not very interested in what's happening. You're not excited about what's going on. Or as we say here, you can be on the edge of your seat. That's kind of what this psalm is saying. Get on the edge of your seat, people. Because God is here. This is exciting what's, what's happening here. And you say, yes, I'm eager, I'm ready, I want to worship God. And so I'm giving my full attention. I'm excited to worship Him. And so, are you excited in the worship of God. You know, statistically, in churches across America, way more women than men go to church. It's usually like two-thirds women, one-third men in church. And I think one of the reasons for that is that men often see the church as this kind of emotional, touchy-feely kind of thing, and men just don't want to show a lot of emotion in general, in public. They don't want to hear, they don't want to watch a guy in a pulpit start crying over things. You know, they don't, they don't want to hear these sad stories. They just, they just rather not have a lot of emotion on the outside. And so a lot of men, especially, they, they tend to think, well, church is all that kind of emotional, deep stuff that I don't really want to deal with. So maybe for you men especially, are you excited? You get emotional in your love for God, in your worship of Him. Well, that's what this command in this first part is telling us to do. So there's the command, clap and shout. And now we have the reason why in verse 2. We have the word for in verse 2, which clearly tells us here's why. It's because the Lord, because Yahweh, the Most High, another title for God, the Most High God, He is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So we have a few reasons in verse 2, 3, and 4. The first reason to shout and clap and to be joyful is that the Lord is a great king. 
you know that if you, their kids sometimes will ask an adult, ask their parents, um, who do you think was the greatest president in America? They always want to know that. Because even kids can tell that there are presidents and then there are great presidents. And even though it's great to be a president and you could be the most powerful man considered in America, you have great influence, there's still a difference between being a president and a great president. And here in verse 2, it could have just said, God is the king over all the earth. But it doesn't just say that. He is a great king over all the earth. He is great in his goodness and his justice. And so verse 2 says he is to be feared. He is to be approached with awe, with reverence, because he is literally awesome. He produces awe in us because of his greatness. And the fact that you and I would be able to enter into his presence and worship him, that is a reason to be excited. The great king who is to be feared calls upon you to worship him. Well, the second reason is because of what he has done to conquer for us. In verse 3, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He has conquered. It's possible that this psalm was written as what they call an enthronement song, a song to celebrate God taking his throne. And they would see in Israel the Ark of the Covenant as the throne of God. And God would appear in the cloud over the Ark, where he would make his presence especially known there in the temple. And on top of the ark was the mercy seat. And so they considered the mercy seat to be like the throne of God. And so it's possible that this um, psalm, as as we're going to see later, is, is a psalm celebrating a time when the ark would be put into the temple, when God's glory would fill the inner holy of holies. And so they would sing this psalm. Well, sometimes they would take the ark out into battle. And so it's possible that's even what they're talking about here, that in their minds God would literally physically go out to battle with them when they brought the Ark of the Covenant out with them. So God is going out to fight before he comes back and sits on his throne. And that's what verse 3 seems to be about. There could be many battles in the Old Testament where God fights for his people, but the most famous ones are when God rescues them out of Egypt at the Exodus, and he sends those ten plagues. This is God fighting for his people. And then when he brings them into the land of Canaan through Joshua, he fights for them. And so they are recognizing that God went out to battle and he subdued peoples under us. But we as Christians can read this psalm and we can think about Christ and how Jesus subdued peoples under us how jesus fought against his enemies for us and he defeated them for us we see this in first corinthians 15 you can turn there if you would like because it's a bit of a longer passage that i want to read first corinthians 15 
verses 22 to 26. This famous uh, chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus. But then in this teaching, Paul says this, starting in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So he is talking about the final resurrection of the believers. And then in verse 24 says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So you see there in verse 24, there's a chronology. Something that has to happen. Then comes the end when finally the kingdom is delivered. But what has to happen first? After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so that is what's happening now. Right now, although Christ has risen from the dead, what he is doing is he is building his kingdom on this earth. He is destroying the rule of Satan as the gospel is preached, as we fight against Satan, as we grow in holiness. That is Christ establishing his rule in our hearts and in his kingdom in this world, and then he will return. So what is Christ doing now? He's doing what this psalm says back in verse 3. He is subduing the peoples under us. He is subduing the enemies under us. Or as Romans 16 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Interesting. God will crush Satan, but he will do it under your feet. And so we have the responsibility to crush Satan. We crush Satan when we say no to his temptations. As we heard earlier in Genesis 3, Satan is depicted like a serpent. Imagine what you would do if a If a serpent slithered into your home, what if he slithered into your bed? Would you cuddle with that serpent? I don't think so. You would get rid of him and you would want to crush him. And yet this is what we allow Satan to do when, when we sin. We listen to the serpent. We let him whisper to us. We let him separate us. From our spouses if we give in to his temptations. No, what God's people must do is crush Satan as soon as he enters into your home. As soon as he tries to separate you from those that you love. You must crush Satan under your feet. 
But how do you do that? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He subdues Satan under you. Christ fights for you. You fight against your sin. You crush the serpent. But the power to crush the serpent comes from Christ. This is how I think 1 Corinthians 15 is happening. Jesus is destroying every rule and authority and power as he crushes Satan under the feet of his church. And this is what Jesus is doing. So he subdues people under us. That's the second reason to clap and shout. And then third, he chose us in verse 4. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. It's talking about the inheritance. God chose the inheritance for Israel. In this case, it's probably a reference to the land of Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised him the land of Canaan. And that promise was a pure grace. There's no particular reason for him to choose Abraham. There's no particular reason to give him that spot of land on the map. But God decided that would be the inheritance for the descendants of Abraham. And so we can think of the blessings that God has given us, physical blessings, the eternal blessings, the eternal life that God has given us, this this, uh, promised rest that Hebrews talks about, that, that we are inheriting and looking forward to being in God chose that for us. It was purely His grace. He did not have to give that to you or to me, but He did. He also, He says, He chose the pride of Jacob, whom He loves. And the pride of Jacob here is probably talking about Jerusalem. And that's because in Amos chapter 6, verse 8, God says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So in that case, he calls the pride of Jacob the city of Jerusalem. And he hates the fact that Jacob takes pride in that city. Because they had rebelled against him. They had rejected him. But in this psalm, the pride of Jacob is a good thing. It's something that we should take pride in as long as we recognize that it was God's gift to us. And so we'll see like in next week's Psalm, Psalm 48, verse 2, Zion is the joy of all the earth. It is something to be proud about. And so the city for Israel, the city of Jerusalem, is uh, for us a symbol of the blessing of eternal life that God has given us. Shout and clap. Be excited that God is a great king. God is conquering the enemies for you. And God has chosen you to have eternal life. Well, now we come to the second part of the psalm with the second command. Second command is to sing because God reigns. Sing because God reigns. And so we see in verse 5, 
It says that God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This might be talking about that time when they would bring the ark into the temple and they would shout and have this ceremony and festival that the ark was being installed again in the temple and they would blow the trumpet to announce that the Lord's presence was there back in the Holy of Holies. And so setting up the scene there, there at the temple, we have the command again in verse 6 especially. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. What do you think he's commanding us to do here? You get one guess. He is commanding us to sing. And he commands us to sing four times. Why does he say it four times? Well, again, I think he's just really, really excited. He's so excited, he he can't contain it. So he says, sing, 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 sing. Um, I remember reading some marriage books, and I found some advice in those books that I thought was really strange. The marriage books were saying that a husband should tell his wife on a regular basis, that he loves her. And I thought, that's a really strange thing to have to say in a marriage book. I tell my wife like 20 to 50 times a day that I love her, and I don't need to read about that in a book. But apparently, some men really don't tell their wives that they love her. But when you love your wife, You would think that it just overflows and and comes out, that you always just want to say, I love you, because you really feel it on the inside. It sounds like this is what's happening here in verse 6. I love God so much, I just want to sing so much, it just keeps coming out of me, I just want to sing, and I want to get others to sing and sing and sing and sing. Like telling your wife, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're so great, because you love her so much. Well, this is the way that we tell God, I love you. There's only one place in the Bible where someone actually says directly to God, I love you. And that's Psalm 18, verse 1. Uh, Unless you count Peter telling Jesus three times. But in general, most People almost that you almost never, except for those few times, hear someone say, I love you, directly to God. And I think that has to do with the reverence that we have for God, the, the fear of God. But we are to express our love to God. We express our love to God by drawing attention to His character, by singing praises to him blessing his name you see that all over the psalms bless the lord O my soul yes we praise god for who he is this is how we express our great love for him and we should be so excited that we just can't contain our singing to him i wonder if you've ever thought much about why 
Christians sing. Why do we sing? Martin Luther, when he was leading the Reformation, he thought that another very important part of the Reformation was not just the gospel, but the worship of the church. And he said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. He wanted to recover music in the church to not be chanting in Latin anymore, that people can't understand, but to express joy through song. Martin Luther's not saying there, have a full orchestra or have a big band with a concert for 40 minutes. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking primarily about singing and how the New Testament calls us to sing to one another. And whatever instruments you use should help in the singing to one another. But music, next to the word of God, deserves the highest praise, he says. God created music. He created music, I think, so that his truth would be beautiful. And that we could express it in a, in a beauty that's unique that you can't express in other ways. We can sing songs that express truth beautifully, that honor him. And music is also memorable. Kids learn doctrine by learning holy, holy, holy. Or and can it be. And it just gets stuck in their heads. And when people are on their deathbeds, when they can't recall a catechism answer that they memorized, people on their deathbeds can sing. They can sing music. They can sing, Be Still My Soul. And remember the truths of God's word. This is part of God's design. Bringing praise to him through this unique form of music. It's our love overflowing with singing. There's the command. So now he gives us the reasons again. We have the word for again in verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. So again, repeating this idea of king, and then he gives us the enthronement of God as the king. In verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. We sing because God now sits on his holy throne. In churches that use a liturgical calendar, meaning they read certain scriptures according to the calendar of the year, Psalm 47 is read on what's called Ascension Sunday. Ascension Sunday is the day, 40-ish days after Easter, when Jesus rose up into heaven. So it's Sunday after that day. They celebrate the Ascension, the rising up of Jesus into heaven, where Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. And it's appropriate to read this psalm for the ascension of Christ. Verse 8, God, Christ, reigns over the nations. Christ sits on his holy throne. A theological word that I really like is the session of Christ. Maybe you've heard that. Christ sitting at the Father's right hand is called the session 
of Christ, which just means seated. But we use that word session to talk about business in session or a a meeting is in session. It, It means that everybody who has authority, everybody who's making the decision is is now at the table. The meeting has started. The meeting is in session. And now we can make these authoritative decisions. And that's what this is saying about Jesus. Jesus, after rising from the dead, now has all power and authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now he sits at the Father's right hand in session to yield his authority, to to use his power for the sake of his glory and for the sake of establishing his kingdom on earth. This is why we sing. Because God sits on his holy throne right now. This is why we sing in church as part of our worship services. This is why we sing on the Lord's day. Because on the Lord's day, we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why the Sabbath is no longer on Saturday, but it is on Sunday. And we especially gather to worship the risen Christ. And it's interesting that this psalm was probably sung on occasion. Right? Maybe a few times in your life you would be able to see the ark enter into the temple. And Jesus, uh, or God established Jewish festivals that were once a year, like the Passover. You would only celebrate the Passover once a year. But now as Christians, we are commanded and we have the privilege every week, once a week on the Lord's Day, to live out this command. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises to our King because... Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus, right now, is seated on the throne. And God institutes this worship once a week, not once a year. Maybe to remind us that last week, when we gathered to sing, Jesus was on the throne. Today, as we gather to sing, Jesus is on the throne. Next week, when we gather again, Jesus is will be on the throne. And so every week, we have reason to live out this song, sing praises to our King, because God sits on His holy throne. And so that's a challenge also. Just like when Napoleon was crowned emperor, people cleared their schedules, I imagine. Just like people didn't make excuses to sleep in or to go to the ball game, but they were excited to gather and celebrate the crowning of their king. This is also a challenge. Now, when you do decide to sleep in or you do decide to go to the ball game instead, with your life you are saying, yeah, I'd rather choose the world and its passing desires over praising the king who sits on the throne. So the psalm ends with God on his throne. In verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather 
as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This all ends with the fulfillment of all the nations coming to God and Jew and Gentile being united as, as the people of Abraham, just like the New Testament tells us that in Christ, by faith, we can all become part of the people of God, whether you are Jew or Gentile. And that even the kings, that's what the shields of the earth means, even the kings now submit to God and his reign. Revelation 21 tells us that, uh, that the kings enter into the new Jerusalem, the city, and they bring their gifts to the true king, God and the lamb on the throne. And so the fulfillment of this psalm is Christ on his throne. One day all the nations gathering to worship him, bring him glory, and he is highly exalted. Before we finish, I want to conclude with applying this to those of you who are kids. So parents, you can elbow your kids and wake them up if they doze off. Uh, And when I say kids, I really mean if you are under 18 and you're not here uh, because uh, you chose to be here, but you're here because your parents brought you here. And I want to talk especially to you kids. Because sometimes young people say, church is boring. And you say, do I really have to go to church? And maybe you can't wait for the day when you aren't under the authority of your parents and you get to decide whether you can go to church or which church you can go to. And what I want to tell you is that church is not boring. And you need to understand that church is not boring. And it's not because of a certain style of music that makes a church not boring. Or the way things look up front, or how long the church service goes. That's not what makes something boring or not boring. Look at what this psalm says God is a great king over all the earth. You should be excited to worship him. You should be excited to come to church every Sunday and have the privilege of worshiping him. And if you aren't, the problem is not with the church. And the problem is not with God. The problem is with your own heart. 2 Corinthians says that when God saves someone, he shines the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ upon our hearts. That's a long way of saying that when God saves you, You see how glorious God is. And when you see how glorious God is, you will love to worship him. So if you find church boring, ask yourself, is it your heart? Are you being blinded from seeing the gospel of the glory of God? Ask God to show you his glory. And then you'll be excited. If God saves you, you will be excited to worship him. You will love him. And all of us 
who are adults, we pray that for you. Because we've seen how God has done that in our hearts. And so we pray that you will love to worship this great king. Let's pray together. Our God, we do thank you and we praise you for your greatness, your holiness, the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God that you are. We praise you for all your benefits towards us, your abounding love, your, your steadfast love towards us. How especially you redeem us from all of our sin. How you have paid the price through the Son, Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us, who rose from the dead and now is seated at your right hand. We thank you for all that you have done. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us joy in the good news of what you have done. Give us joy in who you are as the Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal God, We pray, Lord, that our worship would be honoring to you, pleasing and heartfelt and filled with joy as we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.